But in a way, it wasn't solely about the experience of work. It was about all, you know, the journey of my life to that point that had led me to quite a lonely place. Uh, the sense of who who am I? And there'll be lots of your listeners that will sort of recognise that. Hey, and welcome to Shade with me, Lou Mensa, holding the space for anti-racism conversations through the lens of creativity and activism. Now, before we start the conversation, I want to talk a little bit about the importance of independent voices and broadcasting. It's important now more than ever that independent podcasting is supported and that creatives and activists, who are mostly all freelancers, get their voices heard. My aim is to keep this podcast free so those who benefit from the resources and conversations can but creating a show independently takes time and self-funding and like so many I don't have an income right now so you can support the production costs and my time through the new Shade Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Shade Podcasts. Thank you so much to Mark, Daniel and Ellie for becoming recent patrons and congratulations to Shade listener Simone for winning a copy of the book The Image of Whiteness written and donated by last month's guest Daniel C. Blight. And now for today's episode. This month, my guest is the Shadow Lord Chancellor and Shadow Secretary of State for Justice, Labour MP for Tottenham, David Lammy. Our conversation has been in the pipeline for some time and I want to give special thanks not only to David for giving his time so generously, but also to Anya and Will on his team for making this happen. And we recorded this episode the day before his new role was announced and we shared our personal stories of loneliness, of our communities and our passions for connecting the communities that we are part of during these divisive times. And we shared our thoughts on being part of interracial families and also the importance of supporting the arts. And David shares personal stories of his own journey of activism and why he decided to write his latest book and choose the controversial title, Tribes, How Our Need to Belong Can Make or Break Society. And David was the first Black Briton to study at Harvard Law School and he practised as a barrister before entering politics. He has served as an MP for Tottenham for 20 years, taking over from the late great Bernie Grant and is one of Parliament's most prominent and successful campaigners for social justice. He led the campaign for the Windrush citizens and has been at the forefront of the fight for justice for the families affected by the Grenfell Tower fire. This is David Lammy from an introspective and wholly personal perspective, which I'm delighted to share with you. So enjoy. Well, it's definitely true that the word tribe has fallen out of fashion, Um, that the way in which in the colonial period, white Europeans described groups of people that they came across during the discovery was patronizing, um, supremacist and racist. And it almost was a way of describing um, non 
white European people almost. Mm. Uh, and it's absolutely the case that anthropologists stop using the term but and tend to talk about ethnic groups um, these days. But the reason why I suppose I'm resurrecting the term, what we are seeing is a new tribalism. And it, it, this is not a phrase solely coined by me. Um, I talk in the book about a work in the sort of early 1990s by an Italian called Maffasoli, who came up with the idea. And this is that, in a sense, because of what we're experiencing both online and what we're experiencing in more partisan and extreme politics, and what we're experiencing in a super individualized, super capitalist world is a is a sort of yearning for belonging that individuals have that mean that they are increasingly seduced by a desire to um, say you're in my group and someone else is in another group and that particularly is a manifestation of the kind of online extreme world. And I recognise this framework for viewing the world too. It's something I've developed as a natural consequence of being mixed race. You become very observant from a very young age of the differing communities and tribes. And your experience seems to be one of moving between worlds also that have been at variance with one another. What I found really inspiring about this book is that you focused on the things that bind us together. And I'm curious to know what did come out of this exploration that what does bind us together, what human traits bring us together that um, enables us to move between these various groups? So um, you're absolutely right. The book is not just a sort of policy or academic book. It That for me, there's no point really writing and exploring if in a way the writing is not therapeutic and personal. And so I very much wanted to explore my own tribes. And the reason I suppose I found myself increasingly thinking about this is because really in the last five years, they're sort of saying, they say things like, why do you hate the English? Mm. You're not English. Go back to the jungle, those sorts of phrases. And it's sort of, and obviously here's me sitting here as a politician in the West, feeling uh, certainly at this stage in my life, 48, that I am very English, very British, very proud of my parents' West Indian Caribbean background, but but I absolutely feel grateful for being in this country and, and, and important for me to take my place on behalf of the people I represent here in Tottenham. And so it's a personal exploration. And I suppose what I realised is that there is an innate thing in human beings to belong. There is an innate um, thing to have in what they call in and out groups. You mm. see it in children. There's an experiment you can do with a primary school class um, that have known each other for years. You give one half of the class red shirts. You give the other half of the class blue shirts. And you don't say anything about why you've done that, but within a week, they'll start self-organising along the lines of what colour shirts they're wearing. Mm -hmm. And um, I suppose because as human beings, we're still here after thousands of years on the planet, that, that urge to protect one another who appear and look like us and defend one another against those who appear different or culturally different um, has, has kept us together. On the other hand, 
human beings also have an instinct to cooperate, um, you know, to huddle together uh, against the elements, against the masses. You know, we're having this podcast during the coronavirus outbreak, and it's an indication of the way in which we have to rely on one another in order to survive. And that is also innate. So I guess where I ended up is that in countries like the UK, we have to forge an encounter culture where we meet one another. We have governments have to put a lot of effort into a common culture, into the storytelling, into the nation building that we can all share. That's not just a national project, it's a local project. And I talk a lot about the book in the the Tottenham in which I grew up, which was a very civic place where you could go swimming, go to the local library, um, you know, where my mother collected wages at the local town hall, where there was this sense of provision at a local level. And I'm afraid a lot of that has been taken away. So it's, it's something about really focusing on what we share um, and governments particularly having a view on that. And I think it's a bit of a challenge to my political tradition because here in the Labour Party, we tend to focus a lot on the economics that divides us, on inequality, on the lack of equal opportunity. We have a lot less to say about our national culture. The um, the research with the children with the blue and red T-shirts, that particularly resonated with me. And I did talk about that with friends and family quite a bit. That is an indication as uh, to how at a very young age children will start recognizing similarities and, and differences and so we need to have these discussions with our children about um about themselves and and where they fit in into the world um and being part of a community and my family is a very mixed interracial family with um jamaican and ghanaian and irish and turkish and we all we all come together Yes, it is. Well, and English, of course. So it's all of those. My family. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I obviously reflect on this in the book. It comes from a white, ostensibly a white English background. But her mother, her mother was Russian uh, in origin. And her father has both South African and Jewish uh, origin. So my kids have got that all running through them alongside my historically African and in fact Indian um, background so it's quite a mix as well for me. It is quite a mix and the the conversations are fascinating and you know my daughter's 11 now and so now she's conscious and able to process the kind of ideas that we talk about with her especially since we did the DNA testing as well. Having conversations with our children are both enriching um, and sometimes they can be challenging as parents as well and I'm interested in the issue of explaining the puzzles that our DNA presents as interracial family members and how that plays alongside the social constructions put upon us or put upon our children as they grow through the world. You know, I'm just interested to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about how you manage that. Well, I think that, um, you know, I try in the middle of the book where I talk about identity politics, um, to talk about the fact that in families of colour or a family like mine where you've got mixed and different heritage, whilst there's this thrust in liberal societies like Britain to sort of say, you know, the correct position is almost to be colour blind, 
And this slightly comes out of Martin Luther King's great call to the world that, you know, he, he would like his children and white children to sit down and there to and, and for us to see no colour. But whilst that is admirable, it's not actually realistic. And I don't think Martin Luther King was suggesting that race didn't exist. Race is a social construct. It is a very real social construct. And underpinning it is white supremacy. Europeans started to travel the world where they created a hierarchy, created a situation in which one group of people, um, Spanish, um, uh, Portuguese, English, French, were at one end of the spectrum and other groups of people who were African or Indian uh, were another end of the spectrum. And uh, the truth is that the legacy of that still lives on today. On a personal level, I find that in my family, we don't run away from those discussions. We don't. And that's typical of of certainly of black families. And I think of mixed heritage family. There are differences of approach, but certainly in mine, um, we we like to watch films that deal with those histories and those legacies and actually exploring these subjects. That's how we deal with it. And we, we use film, we use plays to really explore these ideas um, and to help our children navigate how they feel about them. Um, and they're, my kids are 14, 12 and 6, you know, they, they locate their feelings in different places and change and they're growing up also here in North London and in North London they have in their in their as classmates um mixed children and and and, and black children as well as white children so uh, the context here is slightly different to if you were growing up in the outer hebrides um or indeed in rural yorkshire so so that's how i do it and we we are all used to the ideas of loneliness that can come with the search to uh, be attached or become part of a group and that can be a long process that does start from childhood and you talked a lot about the cycles of loneliness and how your experience or how our experiences can have two outcomes we either go further into loneliness or out of it and I was really touched again by your personal story here um, when working as a lawyer in New York and that resonated with me but in a different way I was chronically um, unwell I had glandular fever that led to lots of complications in my 20s and I was very ill and you know I had to rely on benefits and I was alone a lot and that was a very lonely experience and that was probably my um, most prominent experience of loneliness and trying to find a group to be part of. But yours was working as a lawyer in New York and you talked about that. And would you mind sharing this with the listeners and just talk a little bit maybe about that and the two outcomes of loneliness? Well, I write in the book about my life. Um, and in short, that was growing up in Tottenham, in an inner city environment, being raised by a single mother because my father left me when I was 12. Mm. But having this huge opportunity, which changed my life, which was to go to Peterborough and become a cathedral chorister at a very good school. I won a scholarship. It was a Billy Elliot moment for me. It wasn't mm. all easy in that city in the 1980s. 
I left behind a Tottenham that was burning in the riots mm-hmm. um, of the early 1980s. And there was a lot of prejudice in Peterborough. But nevertheless, I found my place at that school and in that environment. And it certainly transformed my life. I then came back to London to the School of Orient and African Studies. And I then got an opportunity to be after that to do a master's in law at Harvard Law School. Um, um, and I talk about some of the Jewish lawyers that helped fund that, for which I'm eternally grateful. And then ended up actually not in New York, working in in Silicon Valley as a lawyer. And the truth is, all of these experiences and these first experiences ended up in a place where I was quite dizzy by the end of it and certainly experiencing quite a lot of imposter syndrome. Who am I? Where am I? And there I was working on the other side of the world in California. But I was deeply, deeply lonely. I missed home a lot. I was working hard. I was confused about who I was and my place in the world. And I ended up on antidepressants and very, very low. But in a way, it wasn't solely about the experience of work. It was about all, you know, the journey of my life to that point that had led me to quite a lonely place, uh, in a sense of who, who am I? And there'll be lots of your listeners that will sort of recognise that. And in the chapter, I reflect on two people in the last few years who've had some Uh, you know, I've met in my life, one during a taxi journey who talked about his nephew who had gone to join ISIS and clearly felt a sense of dislocation and a lack of belonging such that he could leave the country of his birth, um, fly through to Turkey and then to Syria to join a terrorist gang, uh, much to the deep concern of his family, but also a Uh, an individual who sent me and five other MPs a series of death threats and I went to his trial to face that face him down and actually he was an old man shuffling around quite a pathetic figure who was also lonely and it's that that got me into talking about the loneliness epidemic we have in our family uh, sorry in our country which comes back to this issue of belonging and how we forge belonging and and also very sadly how social media particularly can give us the impression that we're hugely connected but is driving desperate division and also driving narcissism um mm-hmm. in the world which is also something that can leave you incredibly incredibly lonely because you can't you can't you know you look at those instagram posts and how could you possibly compete with these beautiful pictures of Kim Kardashian and others? <laughs> real life is not like that. You know, people's holidays aren't like that. Their their washboard chests are not like that. It's not it's not real. No. Um, and it, of course, it creates mental health challenges and and a deep loneliness in society. Never mind who you are and your place in the world, because you're slightly different. Um, or you feel slightly different, or your experience doesn't feel common to others. Mm. And how do we navigate these? Because it is a challenge, social media. Um, And actually, when I was talking about my experience of loneliness, there wasn't any social media then. That was 20 years ago. And I am actually quite thankful for that. I think that would have kind of set me off on on a spiral that would have been very difficult to manage. But I'm just wondering what practical and positive pointers that 
that maybe we can share with the listeners to navigate these potential difficulties and especially at the moment with the virus going on well I would say manage your news Mm. it's easy sitting at home to kind of find yourself with the TV on 24-hour news the whole time. I talk about that in the book and the birth of 24-hour news, to be constantly on Twitter, constantly absorbing the latest from around the world and the death rates. Actually manage your news. One news source at one point in the day is quite sufficient because I can see how deeply destructive it is to the inner soul and inner well-being. So I would say manage the news. Of course, in the book, I call for greater regulation, I think, um, of social media, because it's a bit like the sort of Wild West at the moment, and it's very poorly regulated. And, and, And understand that the truth is that there are companies largely based in California, the West Coast of the States, who employ psychiatrists and psychologists to um, examine how best to drive use of these mediums. And those uses are largely about a dopamine rush. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that can give you a dopamine rush is division. Um, I, I, as a politician, understand, for example, that the best tweets are tweets that state categorically an opinion. And the vast majority of my tweets state an opinion. But clearly, Uh, in the world we're in, those opinions are quite binary and therefore they're quite divisive. Uh, The book is an opportunity to explore how we come together and it's an opportunity uh, beyond 140 characters to recognise that no political tradition is the font of all ideas and actually so much of the truth and how we move forward is found in the middle of the story, not in binary positions. So it's quite important to understand that or you're living in an echo chamber, reinforcing your views and also demonising your opponents. Now, you might say, David Lamming, why are you then on Twitter? But as I say, I'm on Twitter because we're living in an age of Donald Trump, Nigel Farage and others. And it's hugely, hugely important that people who are particularly ethnic minorities see someone like me challenging those views in the public forum. But that's very sad that I have to do that. That was very clear, especially during the Grenfell tragedy. And if it's okay, I'd like to talk a little bit about that with you. It was clear to me at the time, or maybe this resonated with me more at the time as um, a representative of artists, that it was the artists who were able to give a voice about the experiences of their community. There were some prominent voices at the time, and one was DJ Isla and another was DJ Loki. And I wrote at the time about the vital role that artists have in our communities, and they visibly represent our groups to a wider society, as you do. But I'm concerned that now that arts funding is at an all-time low, how the creativity and fairness and openness that you talk about bringing our tribes together actually can can come into our lives as a practical reality. Yes well look it's in a sense at this particular moment when there are so many people in our country who are so fearful of the future, fearful because they're artists, they're creatives, fearful because they're self-employed fearful because they're in businesses where they're worried the business is going to go under and they don't quite know what the future holds. 
you know, I also reflect in the book, though, on the challenges of that. And I talk a bit about another kind of tribe, the tribe of gangs and inner city violence, which is kind of out of control. It's not on the news at the moment, but it's very, very real in our lives. And and some of that has an element of representation and 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 and, and you know in, in that sort of creative sense that's not all positive so there's a set of complexities there that i try and explore um um and but the bottom line is what i'm interested in is let us think about belonging and what that really means let's create a country in which every single individual um can feel a sense of belonging in this nation that we share and have to come together in that means that we can't always look backwards in our country to the Second World War or to the marriages of King Henry VIII to locate that sense of belonging and that inclusive storytelling. We have to look forward as well. Um, it has to be a vision that binds us all and can unite us all, a vision that is as poignant in Sunderland or Wigan as it is in Tottenham or Chelsea. And that's a tremendous challenge and it requires real big innovations and ideas you know and we can do it you know things like the bbc uh, which created a common culture those water cooler moments perhaps not as effective as that used to be because we're now in a world that's multi-channel and um and cable and digital but nevertheless that invention was quite important and we need to think again about more that we can do in this area if we aren't just to become atomized, polarized, um, individualistic cultures in which people lack belonging, in which people have a very narrow view of their own identity, in which there are increasing divides along the lines, if you like, solely of identity, in which someone says, well, I'm white working class, what you stand for, David Lammy, is a black man in London has nothing to do with me and I don't want anything to do with you. If we can't find that common ground, then we're in real trouble. To round up, I'm attempting to, to bring our community together through each guest that I have on the show because we're all working towards a common goal. And I've been asking guests to pose a question for the next person coming on the show as a way of connecting our community. The question for you comes from Daniel Blight who is a lecturer at the University of Brighton, and he's the author of a book called The Image of Whiteness, Contemporary Photography and Racialization. And he looks at the way that white supremacy affects the photographic image. And he asks, what might a future without whiteness look like? Quite a difficult <laughs> question. <laughs> a, a, a future without whiteness? I think at the heart of that idea of whiteness, which we don't talk enough about, a future without that is really a future without supremacy. It's a future um, where we can all get along and rub along and where there isn't a pecking order and deep, deeply cultural and stereotypical understandings of who we are. So, so a future without whiteness for a lot of black and brown people is a future where we truly are free, um, where there is a common humanity, where I don't have to question how many young people from black backgrounds who have the grades, why they aren't going to Oxford or Cambridge. Um, I don't have to 
do reviews into why there's a problem of black and ethnic minorities overrepresented in our prisons. Um, that's, the, that's the future, I think, if we can achieve that. Well, 